Welcome to The Happy Hour. I am your co-host, Jonah Paquette, and with me as always... is Supriya Gill. Hi, everyone. We are so glad to be uh, joined by you today. We've got a very special guest, really fascinating conversation in store, actually, uh, with Lenore Skenazy. Lenore was kind enough to join us on the show, and we had a really fascinating conversation. Supriya, you want to share with our listeners a little bit about who Lenore is and the nature of her work? Yeah, so I'll start with her bio. Lenore Skenazy is co-founder and president of Let Grow, a nonprofit promoting childhood independence. Ever since her column, Why I Let My Nine-Year-Old Ride the Subway Alone, created a media firestorm, Lenora has been declaring that our kids are smarter and stronger than our culture gives them credit for. She is the author of Free Range Kids, the book-turned-movement that got her the nickname America's Worst Mom. She has lectured everywhere, from Microsoft to DreamWorks to the Sydney Opera House. Let Grow School Program, online community, and legislative efforts all promote the idea that when adults step back, kids step up. The psychological world is beginning to focus on this idea. A small clinical study using Let Grow's materials and massive doses of independence as therapy for childhood anxiety found it worked faster than cognitive behavioral therapy and better than drugs. All of Let Grow's implementation guides are free. Wow. So, That's I a know. lot. And that and, and we covered all of that and more in our conversation with Lenore. But so interesting and and powerful to learn about how this um this trend that we've that we've all seen and that we get into with Lenore perhaps starting to shift a little bit in terms of that, you know, moving away from this tendency to overprotect. Uh, because I think obviously as we talk about with her, that that and and you could speak much more as a mom too, Supriya. Like coming from a incredibly you know noble place, right? The desire to, to remove possibilities of harm and, and danger from a kid's environment, actually in the long run, perhaps leading to to more problems. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it is she as a person, but also the work that she's doing is really eye opening in terms of where we are now and and the impact that we might be having unintentionally. So one of the things that I really think that she does a good job of in her book, especially, is outlining how there's this disconnect between our intentions to protect our children and and how that actually ends up impacting them in the long term. So I think that, you know, also as part of her Let Go and Let Grow organization, which the website is available and we have in our show notes also has a lot of resources as well as stories from other parents is a way to really take some perspective on what you're doing and and how that might be showing up for your kids. Yeah. And, you know, as somebody, first off, on a personal level that has vivid memories of riding the subways of New York at a young age, at you know, 10, 11 years old. Realizing now that that kind of thing would have been potentially reportable and 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 landed my parents in, uh, in in hot water. Very interesting to think about how these trends have shifted over the years, but also the real toll that has happened. One of the things I thought was really interesting about the conversation, I don't know about you, Supriya, was you know thinking about the long term trajectory of some of this because we think about this conversation as happening with kids, but of course you look around and you know I think this is something that spans the ideological spectrum in terms of this tendency towards safetyism, this tendency towards fragility, this tendency towards, you know, not tolerating dissenting views or differences between people. And I think a lot of it can be traced back to this sort of this mindset that's been 
in the ascent over the last couple of decades that really teaches and trains people to feel like feelings are, you know, facts in this way and that, you know, problems can arise. So it was really interesting to think about the long-term trajectory of some of this too, I thought. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, along those lines, in terms of thinking about perspectives and, and how this is having an impact societally, we take a look at the the skyrocketing rates of mental health for adolescents, for example. And there's been so much focus on social media and, and especially social media and how this impacts our adolescents and, and how that's contributing to depression and anxiety. And, and I think, too, one of the things about this framework that she's describing in terms of let go and let grow, we can see how things like autonomy and competence, relatedness can be stifled with helicopter parenting. And so I I do think that there is something to be said about a lot of what's happening right now and, and how it's having an impact in different places like you're describing as well. Yeah, so much harkens to to the book by a friend of the show, Jonathan Haidt, who works very closely with Lenore, as you'll hear, and a great book, Coddling of the American Mind, talks a lot about these similar themes too, and the the impact of that kind of style of parenting and upbringing on on kids who then become adults, who become leaders, who become you know people around the world. So fascinating conversation with Lenore Skenazy. Uh, that'll be coming up right next after our short break, and we hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everyone. We are live at the happy hour, and we are so happy today to be joined by Lenore Skenazy. Lenore, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, guys. Happy to be here. Happy hour to be here. (laughs) (laughs) It is not five o'clock in either of our locations as we're speaking, but we'll do the best that we can. Uh, But we're really happy to be talking to you today. And you obviously, your reputation precedes you. We're going to talk a lot about your journey and uh, where you've been, where you're going, what you're working on. But I know, Supriya, uh, especially as a mom of young kids, you were really struck by a couple of things that you came across in learning about Lenora's work. Yeah, and I think what I want to start with is just your book is oh, good. pretty amazing. And I was laughing out loud throughout, throughout the book while also questioning a lot of what I do with parenting, but that's a different different thing we'll get into later. One of the things that I think it would be nice to start off with is, is just something that really resonated with me and, and hooked me. In, oh, in your writing. And then maybe do it again. What is okay, it? Okay. So so here we go. So this is from the book, Free Range Kids, Let Parents and Teachers How Parents and Teachers Can Let Go and Let Grow. And and this quote. Anyway, my point is that society has spent the last generation or two trying to convince parents that our job is to make life into one big smoothie for our kids. No lumps, no bumps, just sweet perfection and some hidden spinach. (laughs) The goal is to raise kids who go from colic to college without ever experiencing any frustration at all. I I will tell you that I am actively trying to hide spinach, but that's not what that's not what stood out to me. My best friends are hiding spinach in the smoothies. It's okay. Sometimes it's worse. Collard greens. Oh, that is worse. That's that's just mean. Um, but you know, I, I think that this really speaks to a lot of the work that you're doing and and how you started to get into this work. So maybe you can just give give a little bit of background of of what got you into thinking in this perspective and and where you are now. Oh, sure. So the the origin story, and I'm sticking to it, is that when our younger son was nine years old, which is a long time ago, let's say he's 25 now, so a long time ago when he was just nine, 
he started asking me and my husband if we'd take him someplace he'd never been before and let him find his own way home on the subway because we live in New York City and that's how we got around, still get around. And um, and long story short, we said yes. One day I took him to Bloomingdale's, a place he had not been before because he was a nine-year-old boy and I stopped at thrift shops. And um, and I <laughs> left him there after telling him it wasn't, the, it was the day. It wasn't like he was like looking around and had to, you know, lost and found kid. And uh, Bloomingdale's is above the subway. I mean, there's a subway stop right underneath it. And so he went down into the subway. He had talked to a stranger. Am I on the right direction? No, he's on the wrong platform. Went to the correct platform, took the subway down, took a bus across town and came into our apartment levitating because he had done something grown up, right? He, he felt he was ready for it. His parents believed he was ready for it. Our older son had never asked to do it, so he calls himself the control group. But he, you know, we didn't know, you know, we just hadn't thought about it before. But once we did, we thought, yes, this is fine and normal. And actually, just yesterday, I was interviewing the president of um, Metro North and the Long Island Railroad. That's part of the whole system here in New York City. And I, and I asked her, maybe this is, am I speaking out of turn? I, I asked her, she has a 10-year-old. I said, oh, would you t- let him take, um, you know, the subway or, or Metro North? And she said, no, I'm like, you're kidding. Come on. Hey, you know, I've been like talking up the safety of this place for 15 years now. And you're saying no. And she said, maybe when he's 13. And I thought what was interesting about that is, first of all, she thought that was the rule. And then we looked it up and the rule is eight. And secondly, we've gotten so used to thinking in really big ages for when we think our kids can do anything on their own. And they're pretty out of whack with history and with the rest of the world. Uh, The American Academy of Pediatrics here in America, as you might guess from its title, um, says that no kids should should be pedestrians until they're 10. And because they might not be developed enough. It's like, well, you know, how about you leave that to parents to figure that out? Because I, how old were you guys when you walked to school? You're pretty young now, but how old were you? Well, I was going to say your your story really resonates for me as a native New Yorker. um, Oh. uh And I am... A little older than your than your young son, who's uh, mm-hmm. still a young young man at twenty five. But um, you know, I have vivid memories just going back of you know being sent to walk to school when I was eight, nine, ten years old, going on the subway. I can't say nine for sure, but certainly by ten and eleven. And I was joking with my parents when I was sort of mentioning that we were going to have this conversation today about how a lot of what was just very normal back then in a a child of the 80s and 90s in New York, which by the way, objectively speaking, more dangerous place than it is today too. For sure, for sure, Wayne. They would have ended up being reported to CPS by somebody if if that was happening today. And so there, yeah, the trends I think certainly have been going in a not great direction with that. And I think hopefully over the course of our conversation, we can talk about the impact that that has both on kids and their development and their well-being and what happens to them psychologically and socially and uh, a lot of trends that, that we see there as well as for the parents, right? Because I think there's exactly. actually two two parties involved in this who both perhaps are suffering as a result of these, these norms. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I was just thinking, Jonah, as you said, you know, I think back on this time fondly, which I think Lenore was your point by asking that question. <laughs> yes. that, that's what Wasn't I it horrible when you walked to school and played outside? Everybody hates it. Right. I know. Well, it's funny. I I walked to school on my own when I was probably seven, six or seven, and I yeah. have not ever thought about letting my own kids do that. And it's just feels like a different universe. But you talk about this in your book and your work about how we have this, these fears that are irrational and not consistent with the data that really drive what we're doing without 
with with culture driving this in terms of helicopter parenting and and I think what I really like about your book is is you talk about how you have been there in in different parts of your life too and and how culture continues to perpetuate this but I I think Jenna too to go back to your your point about looking back on this fondly that's what a lot of the correlational research shows is that people who, which again, Lenore, nicely done. Yeah, I'm, I'm grinning. Yes. Tell us what the research shows. So it's not just me telling you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when adult, when adults, college students, when they look back to, to their childhood and feel like their parents were, you know, subjectively less controlling, they are happier and more successful in adulthood. And well, I remember so many, many a summer day where it would be like, what are you going to do today? It was just, I'm leaving it. And morning, I'll come back maybe for dinner, and we're just going to go hang out at the dump, or we're going to go throw a ball around. My mom actually dump. took me to the dump. Yeah, dumps are fast. Really love the dump. Hey, as a teenage boy or you know preteen, there's a lot of fascinating stuff at the dump. Right. But you know, to this point, I mean, I would imagine a lot of factors that you know maybe we could speak to in terms of um, you know the objective data says that we are in a safer time in many respects, most of us living mm-hmm. in the United States than we were in terms of risk of abductions, risk of you know murder rates, things like that. Mm-hmm. And yet so many things are dialed up on steroids when it comes to the coverage, when it comes to the fear-based sort of way that this is discussed on things like social media and all that. And one thing that I'm you know, wondering if you can maybe speak to, which is I hear from people, um, even people with you know, young kids who actually want to do this desperately, mm-hmm. they're like, I see mm-hmm. that this is better, mm-hmm. but I don't know how to lift it with myself if that lightning <laughs> struck. I don't know how I That's- would... Oh my God! You're you're you're, you're like oh my God! It's like is it, it? There's a G spot for intellectualism. This is this is it. That is that is what I think about so much, and it gives me intense pleasure. And yet I can't quite describe it. Why don't we have that as our name of the podcast, Supriya? The, the, the intellectual intellectual G spot. Yeah. You can feel free. It's pretty clever. Right, right. No, I I really I I called up a professor once, uh, Alan Levinovitz, who thinks about the role of religion in lives and the role of non-religion in our lives and. Mm-hmm. what takes its place. And I was, I said, we have to dissect this sentence that I keep hearing, which is, you know, I, you know, I trust my kid and I think I live in a safe neighborhood, but I could let, never live with myself if, and I feel like that's a new mm-hmm. sentence that parents say at the end of why they don't let their kids do anything. You know, I could, you know, I could give him a Cheeto, but I could never, you know, what if he gets cancer or, you know, what if, I could let her walk across the street, but what if she gets hit by a car? Or I could let her wait at the bus stop, but what if she gets abducted? And what's interesting to me, and the reason I didn't end up writing the article is because it is so complicated to me, because on the one hand, it has to do with plain old catastrophizing or what I call worst first thinking, because things have more power when they rhyme and stranger danger has obviously mm. done a lot better than worst first thinking, but that's my, that's my salvo, right? <laughs> worst first thinking, going to the worst case scenario first and working your way backwards from it to the point where you say, well, I just can't stand it. You know, if, if that could happen at all, forget it. And so I won't let them do X. Um, but there's a couple of things embedded in that. And one is the inability to live with any uncertainty whatsoever and I think that um, as we get as we get more technology that can tell us, literally, I look at my phone to tell me what's the weather at seven tomorrow morning, right? Not is it going to be a sunny day even? Um, mm-hmm. Just literally, oh, what about 8 a.m.? I'm having a party at 3 p.m. Is that going to be okay? So you know the weather mm-hmm. with incredible certainty. And then you know what grades your kids are getting because that is immediately posted on all these different portals. You can tell your kids 
when you take your kid home from the hospital, healthy, bouncing baby kid, you can put a little doodad on their ankle that gives you a readout, maybe you've done this, of their their temperature, their movements, their um, pulse, and their blood oxygen level. And when this thing was invented, I wish, I guess I'll use the Wayback Machine because the, the original statement on their website is called the, I can't remember what it's called. It's some silly thing. Um, the Owlet. Um, it said, okay. just because your child's um, chest is moving up and down doesn't mean she's getting enough oxygen. And I thought that's such a perfect uh, description of our culture because even in the safest of circumstances, your child is healthy, your child is home, they're in bed, they're asleep. You can see their chest moving up and down. And even that is not safe enough. And you're being asked by our culture and then what becomes the norms to distrust safety, distrust um, any kind of calm you might feel and treat your child as if they're at death's door. You know, the chest is going up and down, but maybe they're not going to live, right? And therefore do some intervention and also have no sleep yourself because now you're worried about every single breath and you're paying $10 a month or whatever it is. So you're paying money, you're ever vigilant, you're not you're not allowed to trust the odds. And that's what's in that statement. I, I, you know, I'm sure she could walk home, but I wouldn't, you know, I couldn't live with myself if you're, you're not allowed to say there have been no abductions or murders in my town as long as I've lived here. But that doesn't mean that this couldn't be the unlucky one. And the fact is, it could be an unlucky one. The chances are extraordinarily tiny. But the fact that I have to say there are chances means that people go, okay, they shut down. Right. There's really... Yeah, there's this overestimation of risk that's hard to let go of. That right. seems to be. Yes. Yeah, so, sorry, I told you this is the cheese pot. So, it's not just the <laughs> overestimation of risk, it's the idea that um, if there's any risk at all, it's untenable. And mm. I, that goes back to this uncertainty idea. Like, we can't live with any uncertainty whatsoever. And my favorite book about this is actually a novel called The Every by Dave Eggers. And it's about a young woman who goes to work for, it's just like the circle, except time, you know, 10X. Um, and she goes to work for a company that's sort of like Facebook, Google, and um, everything mashed up together, Amazon. And they keep providing new apps that can tell you exactly how much your friend likes you versus how much you like them. Exactly how attractive you are on a scale of 1 to 100 objectively. And overwhelming. It's overwhelming, but it's desire. I know that's the whole thing. I mean, he's <laughs> but the point is that we want certainty in every field that can be granted us. Mm-hmm. And when we start needing that, uh, we're like junkies. So I think like when your parents let you walk outside to school at age six or on the subway at age 10, 11, whatever, the minute you were out of their sight, something else had to kick in because you weren't being tracked. And you, you you didn't have a phone with you. And so what kicked in was trust. And whether that's trust in God, trust in the odds, trust in fate. Trust you in know, community. Trust in community, yes. Trust in your city and your neighbors. Whatever it was, trust is good. And that trust is being leached away from us and leaving us in terror Every single second, just because your child's chest is going up and down doesn't mean she's getting enough oxygen. Mm. And it strikes me that not only the trust on sort of the micro level within families towards kids from parents, but also as societal trust seems to be on the decline, how much is that playing in with it? So when, you, much. when you mentioned <laughs> risk, um, 
It's interesting to me because I think it's so easy to focus on that one in a thousand or even less chance. Oh my God, I can, terrible yeah, sorry. It's, 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 one in a thousand would be terrible. It's, it's uh, actually one in 1.5 million. But go it's on. Even, <laughs> even better. Well, that's a good number. Keep that, keep even that in there. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but it strikes me there's also a risk that people aren't as in touch with, which is the risk of what happens to children and growing adults when they are raised in this environment. What happens in terms of their risk of developing mood disorders, depression, suicidality? poor relationship skills. I mean, we're seeing rising rates across virtually all age groups, but especially among teens right now of severe mental health problems, severe chronic suicidality, especially in teenage girls. It's terrible. And it strikes me that like we're obsessed with the one in 1.5 million risk and not at the risk of what happens down the road when it comes to quality of life for people in that way. And I'm wondering, sort of my, my pet theory has always been that, you know, there's a lot of factors. I always think like I felt a turning point being in New York, 9-11, and just sort of seeing how things changed post that to some degree. A lot of my friends noticed that too. But I'm curious, like this trend towards helicopter parenting, which has probably always been there to some degree, when do you feel like that started to really become ubiquitous as an American way of life? I'll tell you, but I have to start with a caveat, which mm-hmm. is that um, people think I'm anti-helicopter mm-hmm. parent, and I would say I'm, I'm part helicopter mm-hmm. on my mom's side, so you can't, you know, not <laughs> anti it. And I think I've just described to you a culture that demands helicoptering. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if the outlet is sold not to neonatal intensive care units, but to regular parents taking home their mm-hmm. neurotypical kid, and if you're not allowed to um, have your kid walk home from school until fourth grade mm-hmm. or fifth grade, as some schools do, some schools won't let the kid get off a bus at the at the bus stop near their home could be two houses away or two blocks away without an adult waiting there that's that's not a problem for moms right just quit your job and wait there from 3 to 3:30 every day so so for i just want to say that it's a culture that is increasingly demanding mm-hmm. that kids have constant supervision and if we're not providing it physically then we're providing it with somebody else being there a coach or a teacher or a babysitter or electronically by tracking them or, you know, having a, a where's my iPhone thing on them. So, um, but when did it start? I think it really um, kicked in more like the 80s because of a couple of things that happened back then. First of all, in 1979, if you're a New Yorker and you were alive then, I don't know how old you are, um, there was a, a kidnapping of a boy named Aton Pates. Mm. And that became one of the first national stories of a kidnapping. And weirdly, this is the most I thought interesting fact about that. And um, there's a woman named Paula Fass who wrote a book about American mm-hmm. kidnappings, child kidnappings, happy-go-lucky book. Anyways, it said that when this kidnapping happened, the public's assumption, immediate assumption was that some lovelorn woman had taken this angelic looking little six-year-old boy uh, to raise as her own. So that was the way people were thinking as recently as 1979. And then when gradually it leaked out, well, maybe it wasn't a woman. Well, what would a guy want with a kid? Well, I hate to tell you, but that was like a match to a gas tank because it was so horrifying and fascinating and and disturbing and upsetting that it was it was like every possible flavor that your brain needs to light up every possible neuron. You're angry, you're upset, you're scared, you want justice. Um, you wonder, could it happen to my kids? And once the media recognized how potent a story that was, they wanted to give it to us 24-7. And guess mm-hmm. what? And along came cable TV, and they could. Mm-hmm. That also happened in the 80s. 
the eighties were when um, they they started putting the pictures of kids on milk cartons mm-hmm. and said, "Have you seen me?" Yeah. And there was no explanation, like an asterisk, like you know, relax a little. The vast majority of these children were taken in custodial disputes in a divorce yeah. mm-hmm. or their runaways. So it started seeming like every week you saw a new picture of a kid who was taken, you know, off the streets by a white van and. There was nothing to counteract that. And frankly, nothing can, because once mm-hmm. there's a picture in your brain, that stays there. And your brain works like Google. You say, is my kid safe on the way to school? And the first thing that pops up is obviously the most salient and exciting and visual. And that is the white van and a Law & Order episode you saw and the milk carton. And your brain thinks that anything that's easy to retrieve is common, mm-hmm. is happening all the time. And so this really colonized our brains. Yes. And so gradually it became sort of taboo to let your kids have any unsupervised time. And as it became taboo, we started spending all our time with our kids. And that's the helicopter parenting problem because you know people think, oh, they're such harpies and they're doing everything with their kids and for the kids. The problem is that because we are expected to be with our kids all the time, and we are, then we see everything they're doing wrong. Mm. And then we jump in. And so the, the real problem is that we're because we're with our kids, we jump in. It's not that we're helicopter parents and we're awful. It's whenever you see a kid doing something stupid or mean or dangerous or suboptimal or taking his time or about to spill, of course you jump in. You're an adult. You know how to do this better and faster. And that's that's what's called helicopter parenting. But the problem is just that we're expected to be with them. And it is natural if your children, if you're with your children, to jump in. So we have to make it natural to not spend as much time with them. Well, and you know, to that point, I think when we're not with them, they're scheduled in activities, right? So that's right. The next we have to give thing. them. Yeah, yes. So, so that's. I was just thinking back to those. When were those 10 p.m.? Do you know where your kids are? Ads. Uh, I had a flashback to some of those uh, from maybe the 80s or 90s as well. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, remember. I don't. I don't remember when those were, but I know, yeah, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Which is nice because they weren't saying it's 4 p.m. It's 4.30 p.m. At least it was 10 p.m. PM. Yes, right. (laughs) At least they thought that they could be out. And I mean, like, think of the assumption that's built into that. By 10 and start, you should know where they are. But until then, they weren't saying, well, how dare you let your kids get on a bike and go someplace? Yeah, it's not. It's 10 p.m. If your kids are gone, you are doing something terrible. Uh, it seems like the not only the unstructured play, but unstructured play of different age kids happen. I mean, yes, a lot of these yes. things were kids kind of having the chance to maybe work things out, learn how to navigate these milieus socially, if you will, that um, with sort of the, the immediate jump to solve all those problems for them, robbing them of that agency, robbing them of sort of the ability to actually figure things out and to learn and right. to grow. And I was struck by, I think you wrote about this actually, but I saw the news story a couple of weeks ago about that 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 uh, plane cr- crash in Colombia and those four oh, yeah. kids that were ages what one through 13 four children Correct. who survived mm-hmm. something like 40 was it 40 days am i getting that 40 right 40 days and 40 nights it was 40. biblical yes and Whoa. i'm thinking to myself i think in the amazon rainforest yes. i would have a hard time living one day in the amazon rainforest i absolutely <laughs> would not make it i would be a goner let alone these well. kids doing that it's remarkable i mean right. the resiliency <laughs> and all that it's just it's amazing to think about Sort of, I'm sure, very different norms there too, in terms of like how kids well, what are expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the resiliency, and it's also what they were expected to do and observe and try and help out with mm-hmm. um, all along the way. And what um, is 
depressing to me is that when we treat our kids as if they're in constant danger, which is our culture telling us to do it, not that we're harpies, then we always are there. And when we're trying to help them, but in fact, we're stopping some of the development from occurring. And what you were just talking about, Jonah, the, um, you know, the ability to figure things out on your own and, uh, leads me to Sabrina's question, which was, well, what about the fact that when we're not with them, they're in some other activity that's also run by an adult? So that is a big issue, which is why, let, so Let Grow is the nonprofit that grew out of free range kids. And our goal is to make it easy, normal, and legal to give kids back some unsupervised time because we believe that that is really crucial for them. Mm-hmm. How do you give it back to them when everybody's in soccer, right? Or homework help um, or being tracked? So um, when we started Lecro, so Lecro was started by me, Jonathan Haidt, everybody's favorite intellectual. Friend um, of the show. He doesn't know it, but a friend of the show. Okay. He's on on deadline now. Um, uh, He'll be done in March. Uh, So John Haidt, uh, Peter Gray, who should also be a friend of the show. Mm -hmm. Friend of the show. Mm -hmm. He studies mixed age, the importance of mixed age, unsupervised Mm -hmm. free play. Mm -hmm. And And the article in the Journal of Pediatrics that... We'll talk about too. <laughs> right, right, right. I just got 2,000 retweets from Adam Grant, so I'm happy about that. And Dan Shuckman, who for 10 years was the chairman of FIRE, which fights for free speech on campus. Yeah. So all of us started together because we thought there's something happening that's making kids fragile, um, even as they go into their teens and early adulthood. But the assumption was that it's starting younger. And so how do you create kids who are problem solvers, who can roll with some punches, who can deal with differences of opinion and, um, you know, sort of deal with freedom in general and uh, like those kids in the in the forest. So we're not raising kids in the forest, but by um, we came up with two ways that we think are easy to give kids back what we've been talking about this whole time, some unsupervised, unstructured time. And ironically, it requires a little bit of (laughs) structure to make this happen. But one is for schools to stay open before or after school for what we call a let grow play club. This is Peter's idea. And what it is, is it's so simple. Schools stay open before for maybe an hour or after school, one, two, three hours, as much as you can, um, for a time that kids are allowed to, to just play. And there's, there's balls and there's chalk, but there's an old typewriter and there's a suitcase and there's some feathers, whatever. There's just junk that kids bring from home. And while it's not playing in the woods and it's not playing on the cul-de-sac, you do have a couple of things that you absolutely need. First and most important is you have a bunch of kids already in a place because if you send them home, they will go to an organized activity or they will be on a device, right? Because if they go to the park, there's nobody else there in the park generally to play with. I, I would like it if there were, and if there is, do that. But if there isn't, a play club has a bunch of kids of different ages together, and then you have an adult there, you know, crouching in the corner with an EpiPen, just like a lifeguard if something horrible happens. But they they don't solve the arguments. They don't organize the games. And so I've watched these things. I I was at one school watching the play club, and uh, on the way out, I was looking for the bathroom, couldn't find it, found the school counselor instead. Where's the bathroom? She tells me, what are you doing here? I tell her. I said, come out and watch this play club. She didn't even know they had a play club. We go out and you see there's kids hula hooping. There's about 15 kids, boys, who who organize their own soccer game without a coach, without somebody deciding, you know, if that was a penalty or not. There's kids drawing with chalk. There was kids playing with this big dice. And um, 
And then they then they move, they go and play on the swings or whatever. She's watching them all be like, you know, have agency and have fun and have smiles and maybe some arguments. And she started crying. <laughs> and it's like because she deals with the opposite end of this, the kids who are so anxious, the kids who hate themselves, the kids who have no joy in their lives. And it turns out that it's very easy to give a lot of that back to kids. I'm not saying it's a panacea, but it's something that we accidentally took out of kids' lives. And it was like taking out the vitamin C, hmm. you know, and now they all have scurvy. It's like, well, what if you gave them a lime? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the play is just this normal thing that children have had since the beginning of time that they haven't had for the last 20 or 40 years. Hmm. So a Let Grow Play Club, all, all our materials are free. If you go to Let Grow and you download the Play Club implementation guide, it tells you how to start one. It's pretty obvious. Um, and the other thing is to do the Let Grow Project, which is another free thing on our site, which is where kids get the homework assignment, go home and do something new on your own without your parents. And then we have a fun list of things. You can walk the dog, you can walk your fish, you can ride your bike, you can run an errand, whatever it is, it just goes on and on and on and on. But the point is to make it normal for parents to let go because they don't know anymore when they're allowed to let go. And they're not, right? Because all they get is the American Academy of Pediatrics saying, you know, even a 10-year-old can't cross the street, which is a lie. Um, says Lenore, who has <laughs> no medical training whatsoever. And no PhD, but you should trust me. Uh, and also doesn't call herself an expert, ironically. Anyway, so the kids do these things. And what's amazing is that once they're allowed to cook breakfast for the family, once they go get the milk, once they go to their friend's house by bike and come back, the parents are so stunned and happy, they sort of don't know what hit them. And I do. <laughs> what hit them is the revelation that their kids are going to survive, right? What hit them is the idea that your kid actually is prepared for the world. You created a kid who's prepared for the world. Even if they got lost, they came back. Even if they put, you know, the scrambled eggs had little pieces of shell in them, it's okay. You know, you pick them out or you crunch. It's it's all okay. And exactly the opposite of what we were talking about before, you know, I would never forgive myself if, is replaced by look at my kid. And that rewires the parent and it rewires the kid. And I'm sorry to say nothing else does because I'm here talking to you and this won't rewire them. Reading my book, reading John's book, reading Peter's book, you know, they open the mind, but it's only seeing your kid do something on their own that literally changes the brain. And we coming out sometime soon, let's just say in a large metropolitan newspaper will be the first study mm. of this as therapy for anxiety in children. And it's wow. Can you give us a sneak uh, preview of what you are finding? Because I'm sure listeners would love to hear what you're gleaning from these kinds of projects. Because these sounds like amazing, amazing opportunities for not only the kids, but also uh, parents and families. So what are you seeing in terms of like the, the effects on maybe both sides of that equation? And, and actually, I'm going to add to that because I think I know, I suspect I can hypothesize what the findings were. If you could also speak a little bit, <laughs> a little bit to locus of control and how this oh, factors sure. into to free play. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So um, the pilot study, which was very small, it was done on five kids, but five kids in a clinical setting who had a diagnosis of anxiety by a, uh, a clinician who's also a professor of psychology who normally uses cognitive behavioral therapy. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, um, you're afraid to, say, sleep in your own bed. And so 
it would be like, well, let's let's confront that. You know, you're afraid of your bed. Let's look at a picture of your bed and let's imagine you sleeping next to your bed tonight. And let's imagine, you know, so it's always has to do with facing your fear. Um, but it turns out that even anxious kids have things that they would like to do on their own for fun. You know, whether that's take a bus or, um, you know, go with your brother to the fair or make dinner, or go to the grocery, things like that. These are all things that the kids in the in the study did want to do. And the parents were encouraged to let them. It was a session. There was five sessions with the parents and the kids together, kid together. And um, and so the parents let them and the kids did things that they had never done before on their own. And then without them realizing it, this happened, I guess, three out of, I don't know what happened in two of the times, but I know three of the times, like a kid who'd been afraid to go upstairs or downstairs on his own in his own house, started doing it after he'd started doing these other things without it ever being mentioned, without the psychiatrist, psychologist saying, I hear you're afraid to go upstairs in your own house. Let's do that tonight, you know, or that's too bad, you know, let's confront that. And so the therapy turns out to be more pleasant because it's something upbeat for the kid. Instead of saying, you know, you pathetic loser, it's like, let's see what you'd like to do. And the parents are, you know, encouraged because this is going to help their kids. Parents want to do anything they can for their kids. And so it ended up in these just, all right, five people, but it ended up working faster than cognitive behavioral therapy, Hmm. um, just five sessions and better than drugs. So the interesting thing about it is it does seem to be an actual new type of therapy, which he's calling independence therapy. That's different from like exposure Mm -hmm. to the thing that scares you. And it's different from just talk therapy. So what in terms of uh, locus of control is it's who do you think is in control of your life? The locus, the center of your control. So if you have an, an internal locus of control, you're doing things that you know, you can make things happen. If something goes wrong, you can probably fix it or live with it. An external locus of control is being micromanaged by a bad boss. (laughs) That would be, um, you know, somebody else external from you is deciding what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, whether you did it right. And a lot of kids' lives, because they are so adult supervised now, end up having this external locus of control, because even if it's fun, to which it is. My kids were in sports too. Even if it's fun to go to soccer or baseball or chess team, somebody else is deciding the teams, um, when the thing starts and ends, the rules, uh, the rules, was the ball in or out? And so, you know, adults have this sort of, um, I guess efficient way of looking at play, which is when you see the kids arguing, it's like, all right, kid, you're wasting your time. Let's get to the game already. Right. And so, they sort of fast forward through the arguments through, you know, and Jason, you have to stay on the sidelines because you're too young or whatever. So they, they go to play as if that's the point of play. They get to the fun as if that's the point, but mother nature put the fun drive, the play drive into us so that we would do anything to get there. And the anything turns out to be all these difficult social interactions that make us into functioning humans. We have to decide what we're going to do. We have to sell someone on it. We're going to do this. Um, How are we going to do it? Well, that's too far. Or what about, I have to, you know, if we can't figure out how to make my little brother part of it, I have to go home. Okay, well, he'll be the bad boy. So the whole way you're arguing, you're compromising, you're explaining, you're coming up with a new idea. 
And all of that is an internal locus of control as opposed to an external locus of control. And it also is all the things you're going to have to do for the rest of your life. You have to get buy-in. You have to get along, right? If you're too much of a jerk, you will not be allowed to play. So you have to smooth those rough edges. And we watch it happen in these play clubs. And you just, back to the, 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 the main point of let grow, is that when there's an adult, an adult will not be able to resist jumping in and fixing things. So you can't have an adult. Right. And Lenore, as you're speaking, I, I just read um, Jonathan Hyde's piece on this and I'm thinking inadvertently what happens when we Wait, take you're, away you're free freezing. Play. Yeah. You just read him. What? Uh, uh, we'll see if Supriya comes back on. But uh, in the meantime, I was also wondering, um, you know, I think when you we're not wondering, it's just an observation that um, when you mentioned how the fire was involved, the person who ran that and I thought to myself, oh, that's an interesting connection. And then I started to think about so much of what we see in terms of you know these ills that we see later on in the path, right? In terms of intolerance of opinion, fragility around sort of having feelings hurt. These are not just kid issues. This is, these are some of the things that are plaguing our society among adults, whether it's college campuses. Supriya and I work you know, with a lot of people that are younger generations coming up over the years. And you see a lot of the effects of this inability to tolerate, inability to negotiate sort of differences of feelings and opinions. And it strikes me that these are issues that um, really have tentacles that spread across so many parts of life, not just in childhood. Um, but Sabrina, you bef- we lost yes, you before. <laughs> am, I, am I back? You seem back. Yes, you're back. And okay. Than ever. Okay. Um, uh, what I was saying, sorry, I cut out, um, was that, you know, I, I read the Jonathan Haidt article this earlier this week. And what we're doing as parents inadvertently when we take away free play is taking away opportunities for autonomy, to build relatedness, to build competence, right? Because we're imposing the rules. We're not letting them resolve the arguments or figure out, hey, if I'm being a jerk, like you said, that doesn't really jive with people. And so I think that that is really important to consider. And and it's a, it's a paradigm shift for me as well, just to think about it in that way of, my duty as a parent is to be there 24-7 to make sure that I'm keeping them from any of these difficult feelings, which is really not the way to operate. And, and I think, too, just to go back to what you were talking about in terms of, of being a parent and the expectations around that, I'm wondering if you could speak to the pressures around the perception of what a good parent looks like. Because in those instances where we might be monitoring kids that are playing together or you know, friends in a backyard playing, what, having their kids play together and hanging out. The pressure to intervene when your child is seemingly doing something wrong, is not sharing, is not following the rules, feels high because it's not only that your child isn't following whatever, it's also that you're being judged as a parent. So I feel like there's all of these different forces that are pushing parents to do the things that end up inadvertently limiting our kids. And and what are your thoughts around that and any feedback to move away from that? Um, yeah. First of all, there's pressure on parents like never before. I mean, it's just so intense and crazy. You know, everybody, it's my friend once, but it's like, it's become America's spectator sport. And I, you know, it's like, oh, she did it wrong. Oh, she fed him the wrong food. Oh, she disciplined him this way and not that way. It's just, it's a lot. But um, I'm going to get back to a couple of things. One is you know, there's a lot of us out there now saying that kids need, it, it's so, sort of like, 
it's like whole wheat is better for kids than, you know, than, than white flour. You know, it took a while for um, the culture to start embracing. I don't even care about what kids eat, but, but the whole idea is that, <laughs> you know, whole wheat was seen as radical and weird and like, why are you eating that? That's so gross. And then now it's, you know, wonder makes wonder bread and whole wheat bread. I think that with all these voices talking about what we've taken out of kids' lives that we have to give back, some tension, some frustration, some tears are going to be put back into kids' lives because we realize that taking all of them out was doing them no favors. So I think, you know, if you're hanging around with friends, you say, you know, this is crazy, but how about when they come in, we all agree, you guys can figure this out, right? How about we try that? Um, there's something called a conflict corner, which one person who was doing a, a Let Grow Play Club told me about where you can look it up. It's like, if you look up conflict corner, it'll come up online. And it's, it's this poster you put in the corner and it says, you know, if two kids are having conflict, you send them over there and they have to like look at each other and stand there with their palms out and give each other a compliment and blah, 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 blah. And they finally have to come up with a solution and shake hands. And, and the reason it's really great is because after you've sent your kids to the conflict corner a few times and they come to you with another conflict, you say, okay, well, it's time to go to the conflict corner. They ah, it's okay. We'll figure it out. <laughs> it's just so boring right? and takes so much time away. So um, it's just one way, though, of it becoming of you having a, a sort of graceful way of not solving that conflict, because frankly, solving a conflict doesn't solve a conflict. And mm -hmm. certainly with boys, sometimes a fight is the prelude to friendship. So always thinking that we're Solomon and we have the great, I mean, like I've done it with my kids. It's so horrible. You know, it's like, okay, you'll go first, but then you'll have two turns because you're going second, but then you'll go third and that'll be good because I'll give you an extra. It's like, you can never figure out the right solution anyhow. And it just means they're going to keep coming back to you. It's like a drug addict. So, so to try to give yourself and your friends a little space to not jump in is great. And that's why I have to get back to the idea of a let grow play club is when kids are together, learning to argue, learning to figure things out on their own, and they get used to it. I mean, I've heard from teachers, they say the first couple of weeks, they keep coming to us and saying, this isn't fair, or this was boring, or she won't let me play. And then gradually, they realize, oh, you're not going to solve these problems for them. And they do. We've, we sort of, we're so on automatic pilot, we're so easily available, even by text or phone, as well as, you know, a tug on our shirt, if we're just, if they're just coming in from outside, that you know, it, it's sort of like you never learn the directions if you're in the passenger seat because somebody else is driving. We're driving all their relationships, right? I can't make this work. I'll ask mom. So get out of that driver's seat. Put your kids in the driver's seat and talk about locus of control. That, once again, is the internal locus of control. So the, the broader solution to this is to recognize that we took a wrong turn. You know, we did everything for our kids and it turns out that they actually, it's better if we don't do everything for our kids. It's better if they have some time after school when they're not on their phones and not in a class and not in a sport. It's better if we don't help them with everything. It's better if we send them on an errand and, you know, trust them in the world. It's better if we show them that they mean something to the family other than I'm going to give, give, give to you. You know what? You are responsible for bringing your, your brother home from soccer. I do expect you to make the salad every night. Mm -hmm. um, we had one lady, uh, one teacher who was doing the, um, the Lecro project with her kids in sixth grade. And this one kid wanted to make dinner. I can't remember if it was vegan or not. doesn't matter. But he was a sixth grader. Um, and, and, and the teacher heard it from both sides. She heard it from the mother saying, 
He was taking so long at the grocery, I thought something terrible had happened. I was jumping out of my skin. Mm -hmm. And then the kid said, it was so fun. By being myself at the grocery, I could think, I could look at all the things I wanted to get and think about the dinner. But the point is he did come home. He did make dinner. It was good. And now he makes dinner once a week. And actually, I have a piece that's waiting to go on the blog. Come to think of it, that's exactly that same thing. It was a mom. She was busy. Um, she told her kid, just make your own dinner. I'm, you know, she was, she's mom, a worker, and she's going to grad school. And she thought he'd make cereal, which is what I would do. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and instead, <laughs> but he made tacos. And she said, and they weren't just good in the like, that's good enough. Or like, thank God you made something for dinner. It was like, there was meat and there were vegetables and there were taco shells and there was sprinkling of cheese. And now he too makes dinner once a week. So it's not only him being competent. It's him having his parents trust. It's him being a mattering to the family, right? Not just being a taker, but a giver. And and it's him getting up as a ladder, you know, going up the ladder of maturity. So mm -hmm. I think that if schools, back to the Let Grow Project, which has kids do this, the reason that's such a great thing is because, first of all, it pushes the parent to let go, right? The homework assignment says you have to let your kid do something. But also it's collective. So all the parents in the class or the school or the district are doing it. And that renormalizes it. Like, what yeah. is your kid doing? Oh, my kid got a haircut. Oh, I got it. it was, you know, I didn't think of my kid getting a haircut. I guess he could do that. What'd your kid do? Well, they were going to go, you know, to get ice cream. How can my kid, you know, it's like, mm. that sounds good. So it, it, you got to renormalize the idea yeah. of. It's a cultural shift. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's such a nice awesome. way that you've described the state of this problem, but also I just have to say for listeners too, and it will ring true in such a kind, compassionate, sort of non-judgmental manner to parents who I know are struggling. <laughs> I think I'm non-judgmental. Uh, yeah, we, we, we all judge, but I think it's, it's so easy to just cast blame, obviously, with a situation mm. like this, or to label, or to talk down, or to smear the influencer moms and people like that. And I think in reality, this is a really complex, multifaceted problem that has roots that come from many different places that you've done a... I think a, a beautiful job today of describing it. Now, we are so grateful, of course, for your time. We've taken up more than we told you we would. So we are, you know, this is, this is why I'm here on earth at the moment <laughs> is to spread this message. Cause it's so simple. It's free and people need to hear about it and people need to try it. And we'll of course You're put that message job. in the, in the show notes, but, um, but yes, maybe remind the listeners as well of where they can find more about you in terms of your work. Well, it's pretty easy. Although people always get the name wrong. It's let grow. Not let it grow, which would be very weird. It's not <laughs> let's go, not let's grow. It's let grow, L-E-T-G-R-O-W dot org. And you get there. We have a nice new website. And it, you click on parents and there's ideas for parents to do. You click on schools and there's all these, you know, free materials. Everything's free. And and I am desperate for stories. I mean, like that story I have of the mom whose kid made tacos or the one who's made the vegan stuff. I mean, I have to call these people and find stuff out. Call me, write a letter, send something to info at letgrow.org, and I will personally read it. And we have a contest going on right now um, through August 14th. So if this is up before August 14th, um, it's called the Let Grow Independence Challenge. You send us a picture or a video of your kid doing something on their own or a little essay about you, about what it took to let go or let grow, um, then, you know, you can win. Uh, you know, there's actually a prize. There's actually wow, a like winner, prizes. not a everyone wins kind of thing. So you don't have Wait, so, yeah, what about participation trophies? <laughs> so, so my, everyone rags on participation trophies. Participation trophies are 
part, the reason anyone gives participation trophies is because the parents are there. They don't want to see their kids be sad. We just can't be with them all the time. Kids don't need participation trophies to play. That's right. We just have to let them play without us. And they know if they're better or worse than somebody. I mean, that's just the way it is. You want to get better, you do practice free throws more. But it's it's not horrible to be slower or faster. It's almost horrible to get a participation trophy. I actually heard of one kid, one dad told me his son dropped out of, what is it that you get black belts in? Is karate. It karate. Karate or something. Jiu-jitsu. Whatever it was, um, he fi- his kid was 10, and he finally found out why. And it's because his kid had been in a tournament, known he'd done poorly, and still gotten some kind of trophy or medal. And he was so humiliated by that condescension <laughs> that he quit. Wow. Good for the kid. <laughs> so we always uh, wrap up these episodes with a quick lightning round, uh, a couple of oh, questions, quick hitting. So bad. No, these are easy. These are, these are softballs. <laughs> Lemonade. Plus, right. remember, some of us can be good at things, some of us not. This is part of oh, that's this right. What what you'll give me a participation. We'll give you a participation uh, no. trophy. <laughs> not now. Your parents aren't here, so we don't have to give you a participation that's trophy. Sure. Just a couple of quick <laughs> questions for you that we're gonna, as we as we wind things down. You've talked a lot about your work, obviously, what you're doing professionally, and your purpose of being here on Earth, as you said. Um, but on a personal level, what is like one thing that right now for listeners that you are looking forward to as we speak right now on a personal level? Is there a trip, something that you're attending, something that you're doing, something you're going to? That jumps oh, my, out? I'm such a, a lightweight. Um, one of my sons just adopted two kittens. Um, Music to my ears. I to meet them yet. So, so cute. Oh, my God. So that's it. Hard to get better in anything in life than kittens. So what else do we want to know? Jonah is has three cats, just so you know. Oh, so you're oh. in great company. Sometimes they make appearances during the podcast, but today I can't. Oh, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, and last question, Lenore. How do uh-huh. you cultivate happiness and well-being in your daily life? Uh, it mostly has to do with socializing. Um, and some of it's just text, but I, I, I spend the summer where there's like people are outside all the time. And then I try to have a million potluck dinners. Uh, which I have to go cook for now. Um, <laughs> that's it. It's it's socializing. That's so that's, that's awesome. That's, you that's, seem that's, like you would mm-hmm. maybe like yeah. socializing, getting right. that vibe. <laughs> right. If you come to New York, uh, we'll go. So, and I love going to bakeries. So go to a bakery and drink coffee and eat a pastry and talk. That's like my favorite thing. Social Sounds connections, lovely. bakeries, and kittens. What more does one need in life really? for a good life? Really? Make I, could be, I, could be, I could be editing Good Housekeeping in 1953. <laughs> <laughs> I think so could I. <laughs> I'll, come for, I'll come for a good time. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to the, uh, to the show today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and um, we look forward to continuing to learn from you. Thanks so much. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, thank Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Lenore. Take Thanks. care. And New York. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.